The bar has been raised. The call has been set. Are you ready to summit your purpose? Are you ready to take your passion to the next level? This is Lana Ski, hostess of the Supernova podcast and Supernova marketing coach. And this is your weekly invitation to greatness. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the Supernova podcast. It is absolutely amazing to have you here and to share Thanksgiving with you. Thank you very much, Lena. It's great to be with you. And uh, for, for all the listeners listening in, um, hearing your story and just kind of looking at the body of work that you've been putting out there and all the things that you're doing, um, I think it really epitomizes that there's really the potential for everybody to live a legendary life and to be in a legendary space of being because we can all kind of create whatever it is we want to create and you've had some amazing experiences, some frightful experiences as well, but constantly living out there and growing your own story. So I'm really excited to share that with the listeners. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, the sort of tagline on my website is uh, adventure out beyond where the pavement ends. And so, yeah, I've tried to live an adventure-filled life and, and encourage others to approach life with an adventuresome spirit. I think, yeah, that's quite missing, isn't it? Like, we just tend to go through the motions and we forget about the adventure and out there and that all adventures don't necessarily have to be as epic as scaling Mount Everest, that there are smaller adventures as worthwhile to be had. For sure. Um, One of the adventures that I consider the most meaningful for me was reading Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. That's a monumental piece of literature which takes you deep inside your own soul as as uh, in uh, three volumes <laughs> of thousands of pages, uh, he describes his own internal journey. Um, so you know, adventures of the spirit, adventure of the intellect, those are just as meaningful as uh, scaling mountains. And... Uh from being a lawyer to a turned philanthropist who not only walks the walk in terms of lecturing, you're also somebody who really epitomizes it because you're kind of really out there doing things like the Bassa Village and really just living on the edge of that, like that, what you're saying, exactly stepping beyond that pavement. And I was just curious, what really brought about that change for you? Was it like a change of heart? Was it a, a deepened sense of purpose? And what is it that you're out here to do? Because it's quite a shift to go from lawyer to the body of work that you're doing now. Well, it didn't happen in just one great tectonic shift. Uh, I've, from the time of uh, adolescence and developing a social conscience, I've been interested in and tried to be involved in philanthropic activities because I was lucky enough to be born into a family, uh, not wealthy, but a a good middle-class family and and felt, uh, you know, a sense of thanksgiving uh, for that. And so I've tried to give back in 
ways throughout my life. Um, and then when I graduated from high school, having grown up in a small town in Indiana and uh, lived in a pretty homogeneous culture, I wanted to go out and, and physically experience the wider world. And so I walked to the edge of town and hitchhiked across the U.S. And that really began my life uh, as an adventurer in, in the sense of that outward adventure. And since then, I've you know done all sorts of travel, adventure travel tri type trips. Um, and, I, and I continued to do that while lawyering. But uh, as I was approaching 40 and life was very busy because I had two young boys. Uh, by that time, I was the senior partner in a small law firm. And so we had the business of law to take care of and you no know, house and a mortgage and all of the, the things that, that tie you down. I was beginning to feel really very restless and you know, just tied down with all those responsibilities. And my wife, sensing that, one day I came home from the office and she slapped a brochure down on the table in front of me, which was uh, about trekking in Nepal. So she was basically saying, get over this midlife crisis and go take a hike and do it on the other side of the world. So uh, so I did, and I went with a friend, and we hiked the Mount Everest Base Camp Trail, had a, just a marvelous experience, and that got me interested in mountaineering. So I did some training and started going back to Nepal uh, or India every year doing Himalayan climbs. And eventually that connected me with this little village called Basa. And I've become what they call, they call me uh, Jephdai, which means uh, big brother, elder brother, uh, because I've been working with the village for a number of years now in, in developing the infrastructure of the village by raising money. And so we've uh, created a school and hydroelectric plant and a water system and, and that, that sort of thing. And so we're trying to spread out uh, into that area around Basa Village. Wow. <coughs> so inspirational. And it's, it's, it's just that almost amazing metaphor of you never know where your feet are going to take you. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I certainly, growing up in Indiana, um, here in the Midwest of the U.S., had no idea that eventually I would feel like I had a second home in this little Himalayan village. <laughs> must be beautiful over there. It is. Um, the The homes in the village are all made of stone and hand-cut stone, and uh, the, the roofs are either a thatch or wood slate or very colorful tin, um, usually a bright blue or green tin. And the, the village is set on a ridge line overlooking a huge uh, river valley. And then off uh, to the north is the Mount Everest Massif and all the huge white peaks. So it's, it, it's really beautiful. And the villagers have a, a really beautiful way of life. They're all um, 
subsistence farmers. I mean, they grow what they eat. They don't have any stores. There's no um, real trade. Um, they make all their own tools. They farm with handmade implements. Um, and in the village, there are uh, blacksmiths who make the tools and so forth. And if they live life uh, the way Europeans did a thousand years ago. Uh, but the, the downside of that is that because they uh, cook and heat over open fires in their home, there's uh, significant uh, medical problems like cataracts and pulmonary disease. And um, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on your outlook, uh, so the outer civilization is encroaching. There's a road that's coming closer and closer to the village. Uh, when I first started going there, you had to walk a week to get from the road to the village. Now it's a day and a half. And so the, the villagers, seeing change coming, decided that they needed a school for their children. And so that was the, the first real development or change within the village, was to, to uh, build and create this little school. And then, uh, with more exposure to the outside world, they realized there were these other benefits that they could have to improve life, like electricity. You know, I mean, think about what it's like living without any uh, artificial light. So that all any light you have to make through a fire. Um, yeah, and we take it for granted almost. Oh, we do. And if you want water, you have to walk uh, a mile downhill uh, to a river with a bucket, and then carry that bucket back a mile uphill to your home, and that's your water for the day. So you know when they saw these uh, these other ways of doing things, they they wanted to make life easier and to improve their health and sanitation and education. And and uh, so I became the, the link to the outside world to raise the money to, to help with those projects. And then they build uh, all, all of these projects. They provide all the labor and then they run them so that yeah, so my role is, is simply to raise money and be an advisor, uh, but not to run the projects and not to tell them uh, what it is that they need or how they should change the village. So that our hope is that their culture and their community will evolve in a way that they are directing as opposed to outside sources. I like that. I think there's a lot of empowerment in that because it still feels like it's theirs. It doesn't feel like it's been taken away from them. Yeah, exactly. And you can look around the world and see a lot of uh, well-intentioned development efforts. But when you come in from the outside, it, you know, no, no matter how sympathetic you might be, you know, you're not part of their culture and you can't help but try to impose your own values and your own view of how things should be. But if you let the local people take the initiative and come to you and ask for assistance and let them 
then control the rate of development and exactly what is changed about their community, um, then I think it's a, it's a much healthier and we certainly hope has a much uh, better chance of succeeding in the long term and, and not being harmful to their really beautiful local culture. Well, I'm sure it will. It'll be in- interesting to see how that develops <coughs> over the years. Sure, and you know, as somebody who's an academic, I, you know, I, I look at it in a way as an experiment. I mean, that sounds kind of inhuman, but I just mean as an observer uh, who developed uh, a philosophy of uh, philosophy of development with these folks, uh, partnering with them. You know, I'm curious to see how it works out, and. You know, so far, I think it's working well. Um, just if, if you don't mind, a kind of an interesting little example. Um, one of the things we did was to uh, buy all the parts for uh, what's called smokeless stoves for each home. And a smokeless stove doesn't really not smoke. It just vents the smoke outside of the home. So... So the, the people aren't inhaling smoke and smoke getting in their eyes, it vents it out of their house. And so, um, so then the villagers built the stoves themselves and installed them and put in the vents. But they're in their culture, they have a circular fire pit at the center of their home. And in each fire pit, there are three stones. One represents uh, God, one represents man, one represents woman. And those stones also determine where people should sit around the fire pit. And so the, the family sits by the woman or the mother stone. Um, regular guests, sort of, you know, neighbors would sit by the father stone. But honored guests from outside of the village would sit by the God stone. So this is, you know, a unique aspect of their culture. So I was concerned, so if they bring in these smokeless stoves, how is that going to affect uh, this tradition? And when I came back to the village after the, the stoves had been built and installed, some of the villagers had put the stove on top of their fire pit, and so I said, well, you know, what about the sacred stones? And they said, well, we know where they are. <laughs> and then other people had put the stove uh, off to the side in sort of a corner of the home and, you know, maintained that tradition uh, unchanged. But, you know, the interesting point is different people within the village made their own decisions, but they were their own decisions. You know, they weren't made by outsiders. You know, we didn't say, well, you have to put the stove here or there. Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Just going back to the point that you mentioned about the academics, though, and the way of doing things. Um, I know that you lecture about philanthropy in quite a different place, and it almost seems like it's, or well, I've never experienced a lecture of it, like, isn't this more about an art of being? Like, how, how, how do you get the pillars of what it is that you're really doing and what this whole philanthropic movement is across to students and the leaders who are going to change the world thereafter? Well, the way I conduct my class at Butler University here in Indianapolis is we start 
by looking at what are the roots of philanthropy um, in ancient literature. Because if you think about it, it's sort of an odd thing. Um, you know, why give of yourself to other people? You know, why not just focus on yourself, take care of yourself, certainly your family, but why go beyond that? You know, where does that come from? And it's a, it's a very deep uh, aspect of human being in our species and in our ancient cultures. And, uh, you know, biologists, geneticists will tell you that we have, as every species does, uh, an innate drive to help the species succeed. And so if you look at it from a sort of biological, deeply psychological level, uh, as a species, every member has this sort of drive or lo loyalty to help the species survive and thrive. Um, and then if you go and start looking at ancient literature, um, what you'll find is the uh, ancient Hebrews, uh, in their earliest uh, writings, in uh, the, the Pentateuch, the original five books of the Torah, uh, they began to sort of worry about how do we take care of poor people in our community? You know, what, what do we do uh, about this problem of poverty? And they began to develop a system, a welfare system, um, on how to do that. And the, the first law, uh, at least uh, in the Jewish literature, um, was the, the Jubilee year, where every seven years, all debts of uh, fellow Israelites would be forgiven. And so, if, and, and the idea was, we don't want our people to become impoverished. And if you haven't been able to pay off a debt, within seven years, um, then we're going to wipe it away. And what, what's really amazing about this is that in the United States, our bankruptcy law works exactly the same way, and it has a, a seven-year duration. And so this tradition that started thousands of years ago has carried over, and you know, almost every modern country has some sort of bankruptcy law where we will allow people who've gotten deeply in debt uh, to, to, you know, to have a new start. And so that, that was the, the beginning. And then in, the, in our class, we then look at the uh, ancient Greek culture and Plato and uh, the, the book The Republic. He also deals with, you know, what do we do about the poor Athenians? Um, and so... That's how we, we start out trying to, you know, understand where this comes from and how it develops. And then we look at some case studies of um, efforts to do philanthropy in the modern world and, and criticize some and praise others and try to figure out the best way to do it. Absolutely fascinating. And, and it's such an important movement to be able to connect with that because it's so easy to just lose sight of that and to not know the history of that, to not know the role that we're supposed to be playing on this planet. Yeah, the word philanthropy uh, from the Greek is philos, which is love, love in a you know brotherly, sisterly sense, not erotic 
um, or not a divine, awesome sense, worship, brotherly, sisterly love, and then anthropos means humankind. So it's you know, love of humankind, and it, you know, the, the expression that people that have grown up in the Judeo-Christian culture, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, that was in the, the ancient literature of the Jews and in the literature of the New Testament. That's what uh, our you know, Judeo-Christian religious culture has taught us from the time we were little kids. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. And to me, if you think about that in just sort of common sense terms and not sort of elevated, abstract terms, it means first love yourself. In other words, take good care of yourself. You know, live a good life. Be healthy. Eat right. And then, when you can, when you're when you've taken care of yourself, help other people who need your help. And that's love of neighbor. And you know, that's fairly simple. Take good care of yourself. Help other people who need your help when you can. Very important. I think that point of loving, loving yourself and honoring yourself is so important because I often see with heart-centered entrepreneurs, these people who just really want to give a lot of value, that they almost pour themselves out and they forget about themselves in the equation. And if you're not looking out for yourself as well and you're not getting your needs met, it's going to be so much harder to serve the community and to serve the globe. Definitely. And that's a point I make in my class and in the books I've written. If you haven't taken good care of yourself, you're not going to be in any condition to help other people. And so if you have a heart for helping other people, start with yourself. You're a person. <laughs> so We all need help. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, if you don't, eat right, if you don't get a sufficient amount of exercise, if you don't um, create a circle of friends of, of other good, positive, healthy people, um, you're not going to be healthy, uh, either spiritually or physically. And then, what good are you? It's just going to be more toxic energy being put out into the world. Indeed. And there's also a degree of courage that needs to come into that, to really be able to see yourself and to see your sister or your brother on a, on a global scale and and to step into that role, to not be held back by convention of, you know, there's been a lot of videos on YouTube recently about homeless people. And I think there's been a huge campaign in the States around it where the old mindset is, you know, literally just look out for yourself and you forget about that other piece. We, we need to live in a duality. We're in an ecosystem. And it can also be tainted so the other way that we just focus on ourselves, we don't focus on other people, and then there's also destruction and things happening on that level. Certainly. Um, and, you know, homelessness is a, it's an issue that, on the one hand, it just seems intractable. It's sort of like, you know, the poor will always be with us. There will always be homeless people. Um, and, you know, whether that's a correct assessment or not, well, there they are. And so are we going to just, you know, stand back and let them fend for themselves or are we going to lend a helping hand? And, you know, the, the first step in that is recognizing that they really are people. 
I mean, you know, when you walk down a street in a, in a big metropolis and you see uh, homeless people, uh, especially here in the States now with winter coming on, um, and it's so easy to look away. Uh, and I'm, I'm guilty of that as much as anybody else, so I, I'm not setting myself up as any example here. Um, but, you know, but homeless advocates will tell you is just to look them in the eye like you would any other person to to recognize them as human beings has value and is meaningful i mean it's just like in uh if you work in a retail shop and you're dour and you know grumpy and every customer you encounter you pass on that grumpiness as opposed to being bright and smiling uh you know, passing on that positive energy of, of just a smile and, and speaking courteously. Well, you know, that sort of positive energy moves out, and the homeless advocates will tell you, you know, be that way with the homeless. Even, even if you don't give money or give shelter or whatever, just treat them like a human being. Don't just turn away as if they're some, you know, ugly scrap of garbage. That actually just reminds me, I've recently wrapped up reading Amanda Palmer's latest book, The Art of Asking, and she speaks about when she was a bride. So one of her earlier jobs was to paint herself all white and to be a statue, and she was making a bit of an income that way. And she felt really bad when a homeless person would come around and give her a dollar and the transaction was you'd give something and she'd give you a flower back. And in the beginning, she'd feel so guilty. It's like, who are they to give me? They need it more than me. And because her transaction was about really seeing them and honoring them and giving them this flower, tapping into that space where the, the two of them really connected, that was really what it was about. And that was really what they were just looking for, that they were so willing to pay their own money that they've been working so hard or that have been given to them after and I thought that was just so inspirational it, it is and you know you can find that uh, that kind of inspiration going back again into the, the ancient literature you know Jesus tells the story of the widow's might this poor woman who had almost nothing who came to the temple and who gave you know, her small coins, uh, and did it very quietly, humbly, as opposed to the wealthy members of the community who made a big show out of, uh, you know, dropping a, a gold coin into the plate. But if you compare what did she give, uh, relative to what they give, you know, she gave so much more. And <clears throat> the statistics, uh, at least in the States, uh, show that people of lower income routinely give a higher percentage um, of their wealth uh, to charity than wealthy people. And so, and you know, I've looked at some of these studies, and and uh, some of my students have written papers about it. Uh, and you know, the sort of the general uh, conventional wisdom is that people who live closer to the edge have greater understanding and more sympathy for those who've crossed over the edge and who are truly in 
poverty and really need help. And it's also interesting where the, the people in the lower income scale give uh, charitably, and they tend to give to poverty alleviation programs <clears throat> uh, and uh, health issues, whereas wealthier people tend to give to universities, uh, to big hospitals, to museums, you know, to pr and to promote the arts. All of which is a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm all in favor of all of that. But it is interesting that the different, uh, focus that the poorer folks, you know, sort of recognize that could be me. And richer folks that, well, what I'm interested in is, you know, getting my name on a building at my university. Yeah. It's more about the status of it rather than the heart of it. Exactly. Well, just to flip things a little bit to the other side, because there's just so, so many things we can talk about. Um, it, I'm always reminded of the quote, it takes a lot of courage to be who you are, and been doing a lot of work on the slopes of Mount Everest and Nepal, and there's been a lot of adventures that you've gone through and all of that. What did that journey or that series of journeys and adventures teach you about yourself and your contribution to the planet? Well... When I first got involved in mountaineering, um, it was such a, a different experience for me. Um, I'd done a lot of traveling, um, but living in the Midwest here is, this is a very flat country, and I just I hadn't been around mountains. Uh, you know, I had done a lot of scuba diving, canoeing, kayaking, things you can do on flat Earth, uh, <clears throat> motorcycling. But so when I first experienced the mountains, it was just, it was this unique turn on, uh, you know, the, the beauty was, was just really moving to me. And I really admired the people that live in the Himalayas. They have this wonderful combination of being just incredibly strong, uh, and being, first of all, being able to endure living, <coughs> um, in that uh, climate, that altitude, you've got to be pretty tough. But then to be able to carry really heavy loads at high altitudes, um, you know, hour after hour, their strength is, is just, it's incredible. Everybody who goes over and treks <clears throat> over there is amazed by it. But then instead of a, a kind of American aggressive toughness, uh, what they have this wonderful, peaceful, kind, gentle attitude. And so you, you have these amazingly strong, tough people who are just very kind, very gentle. And um, I, I just really enjoyed being around them. And so my, <clears throat> my uh, trips in hiking and climbing in the Himalayas, you know, introduced me to the, this, different part of the world and the culture and the people and I <clears throat> I just wanted to stay connected with but in terms of the <clears throat> the philanthropy side of it there there was sort of a, a turning point uh, <clears throat> excuse me um, I, my, my climbing group uh, hiking away from the base camp of a, a particular mountain called Mira Peak uh, an avalanche struck and um, it killed three porters 
from another climbing group, and we saw it. We were below them. They were on a higher ridge. We were on a lower ridge, and we had to run for it. <clears throat> but by the time the avalanche hit us, it, it had pretty well petered out. And um, some of our group were stuck uh, for a day, trapped on the other side. But <clears throat> no one in our group was really hurt. But these three guys who, you know, we'd been camping with for for the last week or so, uh, they died. And it made me rethink exactly what I was doing in being a, you know, an adventure traveler, a mountaineer, a trucker. And that these local guys were risking their lives just to give us, you know, this exciting experience. And so at first I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore because that's just not fair to these people. And I didn't go back for a few years, but in 2003, Sir Edmund Hillary and the King of Nepal uh, sent out uh, a request to all truckers, climbers, uh, please come to Nepal to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first summit of Mount Everest, which was in 1953. So <clears throat> I decided I would go back for that and participate in the celebration, but also do some research and, and write about how these 50 years had affected the local culture of the mountain people, primarily the Sherpas. And so I, I hiked around the Kumbu area where the Sherpas live and interviewed um, old Sherpas and old mountaineers and and try and like the the um, uh, the Tingboche uh, abbot, the head of the biggest monastery in that area, uh, Lama Tenzing, and, and a bunch of members of the Hillary family. And what I came away with was a, a different way of looking at how the, the tourists were really helping the local culture because out of tourism an economy developed and the, the Sherpa people went from being the poorest uh, ethnic group in Nepal to being the wealthiest solely because of the tourist dollars that were brought into their area. And it, it's, it's changed their culture and from a one perspective, you could say it's damaged their culture. On the other hand, if you talk to the Sherpas, they're all quite happy <laughs> with it, and they do not want tourism to go away. And then also what spreads out from that tourism is people like Sir Edmund Hillary started foundations to work with the, the Sherpa people to develop schools and electricity and water systems and so I really took his life as an inspiration and decided to try to do that in my own small scale um, in, an, in an area that's not directly, uh, it, it's, uh, it's south of Mount Everest, it's not in the Sherpa Kumbu region, it's in an area um, where a different ethnic group called the Rai people live. Um, but so in a, in a little tiny way I've tried to emulate what Sir Edmund Hillary has done, uh, not mountain climbing uh, so much, but uh, his foundation work. And 
it's amazing to see that transformation. I think that shift is also really important because it's so easy to to get trapped in, you know, am I doing the right thing and how is this actually serving? And we get locked in ourselves and these are the kinds of times where we actually need to look outside of ourselves and see the impact of what it is that we're actually doing. Yeah, and I <clears throat> I think it starts with knowing yourself and um you know, really being somewhat introspective about what do you value. And so when I had this uh, this really unfortunate experience of that avalanche, um, and it forced me to seriously think about what do I really value. And yes, I value uh, the adventure, the exhilaration, um, and, and just the, the awesome views of mountain climbing and trekking, and I still value that very much, but I also valued those people. I mean, I, I found these people so admirable, and so I wanted to see if there was some way that we could partner together on a different level of me paying them to carry my equipment and to cook meals and to guide for me. And could we partner uh, on on a philanthropic level? And it turned out that because of my connection with this one particular um, outfitter company, where the owner is from Bassa Village, and most of the uh, men and women that he hires are from Bassa Village, this connection with this one village developed. And, uh, you know, it, it's enriched me tremendously. I mean, I've learned so much from these people and, and feel like my contribution to their village has been given back to me tenfold. It sounds like the work that's happening there now with all the things that are being brought in and the schooling system and all of that, it's, it's, it's just rewarding, I'm sure, to see that come out of something that you started, that you sparked. It is, um, but, you know, I... I really I give the credit to them, and I'm not trying to just sound like oh you know, Mister Humbleness here. Just to come to save the, the world, kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am definitely not a savior, <laughs> uh, but uh, because we together developed a certain philosophy of doing the philanthropic development, um, it, you know, they it is their development. And we call it a partnership because my part of the partnership is to raise the funds because they really have no ability to raise capital because, you know, they grow what they eat and that's it. So the capital has to come from the outside. Um, but in return, they've welcomed me into their community and, uh, you know, consider me a brother and I delight in my relationship with them. And like I said, I, I've learned much from them. And it, it is satisfying to see like, the hydroelectric project. Uh, the, the villagers carried all of the parts to build a little hydroelectric plant. I mean, human beings carried these huge, heavy pieces of equipment to build a little power station. And <clears throat> we hired an, an outside engineer to supervise it. But that, that one person was the only person from the outside who had anything to do with the actual construction. 
Um, we had an engineer over here in the States review the plans and agree that it was a good plan, but the villagers built the entire thing. They scaled a 100-foot wall uh, right by the side of the river <clears throat> and strung the wires up, strung the wires a mile across uh, rough uh, scree and ridge lines to get to the village, erected the poles uh, under the direction of the engineer, did the wiring, and, you know, so so they own it. I mean, it's theirs, and yeah, they're very they're proud of it. it is. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's really neat to see how they figured out how to maintain and run the plant, which they did themselves. They, I was there when they had a, a village meeting that lasted the better part of two days where everybody gathered, and they talked through, okay, how are we going to do this? Who's going to do what? And they, as a community, um, you know, divided up roles from... Certain people were going to prepare food to feed the workers. Uh, others <clears throat> were going to do the, the dangerous, difficult uh, climbing up the cliff wall, stringing the wires. Others were going to do the fine work of wiring up the outlets. And, yeah, I mean, they just did this all themselves, having never done this before. Uh, it, was, it was really, really cool to, to see how they figured out how to do this. Well, it's absolutely inspiring and phenomenal and goosebumps just hearing it. I mean, and what I really love about that as well is the power of community and partnership and collaboration because very often if we just look at an individual person, they had a project like this, you wouldn't know where to start with that because it's so far out of your realm, it's so foreign, it's so alien, it's just so big. But when a collective comes together, when a community, a tribe comes together, and they set that intention for something, the world just moves, and things just start happening, and you just know intrinsically what needs to happen. Yes, you may falter every now and then, but the end result will be so much greater. Yep, that's the, the positive force of true community. And you know, true community requires uh, trust that every member of the community trusts that the others will be working for the benefit of the community as opposed to trying to just get something out of it for self. Um, <clears throat> and then to have a, what a sociologists call a superordinate goal, a, a goal that supersedes the self-interest of the individuals of the community, but that will benefit the entire community. And you know, I look at this village and how wonderfully it works, and then I look at our U.S. Congress uh, or the United Nations and where <clears throat> people come together and instead of trying to uh, create uh, more a more bonded world or a more bonded nation, they so often come into it with particular uh, ideologies or particular selfish interests, and they're either going to just you know push their ideology or they're going to advocate for their own self-interest, and so it just becomes a fight you know, because you have opposing sides because other people have opposing interests and other people have different ideologies, and so there's just this butting of heads instead of people sitting down looking at an issue like. 
uh, you know, like it's a problem, or like uh, the way a doctor would look at a patient. You know, here here is a problem. How do I solve it? How do I treat the patient? How do you know? Let's figure out what's wrong, and let's figure out the cure. And wouldn't we all be better better off if our politicians approached political issues like that? Oh, definitely. And, and it also just speaks to that um, core idea that you, you mentioned, that beliefs divide us and values unite us. It's just a, it's a very different system between what's happening there and what's happening within this community. And I believe values is something that you really intrinsically believe in and follow, and it's actually the, the defining of your eighth book. Well, that's right, and <laughs> thank you for mentioning that. Uh, yeah, this uh, book I just finished, uh, it was published November 11th, and that's the, the, the central theme of it is how values do unite us, because most people, most places, most cultures share fundamental values and like I said before you can break it down to take good care of yourself and help other people when you can I mean that's sort of our fundamental ethical values and <clears throat> uh, beliefs in the sense of particular religious doctrines or particular political ideologies take the focus away from values and and then it becomes you know, believers versus non-believers. <clears throat> That's on the political and the religious level. And so <clears throat> what I advocate in this latest book is why don't we just set aside our belief systems when it comes to trying to make life decisions and solve uh, political and social problems <clears throat> and figure out what are our common shared values and then look at the problem as something that we just need to find a practical solution which we can all live with, which isn't going to necessarily fit exactly within any one particular ideology and isn't going to satisfy any one uh, individual interest, but it's something that the community or the nation can live with. And you know, I, I give a number of examples in the book of how that has been done and how it's not getting done uh, in so many ways currently. But it's amazing when you do that. I remember somebody asking me, like, what are your, your business values? What are your values <laughs> that you want to be putting forth in the world? And if you do separate beliefs, beliefs are going to be defining what you can and cannot do and the limitations and the boxes and all those things. But when you look at the values, you're, you're much more connected to purpose, you're much more connected to a deeper vision, and something that's a lot more soulful, and then you start seeing, hold on, these beliefs are actually just blocks, these are just little things, but they don't actually fit into what really defines me, which is my values, so it's so important to be able to pull those apart, and it's, it's not entirely that easy if you haven't done the work in that so easy to conflate them. Right, and it, and it goes back to taking some time to be introspective. But an example I give in the book is, so go to any big city, and here you have thousands of people on the sidewalks. And for the most part, all of these people manage to walk around each other, the 
pedestrian traffic, it moves. Um, rarely do fights break out or, you know, do people push and shove. And why is that? Well, it's because people in that situation are all operating on a common value. I value my own personal space. So do you. So if we're walking towards each other, we step aside. You know, we don't want to bump into each other because I value my personal space and I respect your personal space. And you, you respond the same way. So all these people, you know, they weave in and out and, and it works. Now, put somebody into that situation who has a belief that walking on the right side of the sidewalk is the right way to do it. And I have the right of way. And that's what I believe. And if anybody gets in my way, they are wrong. And I'll just push them aside. And that's how people operate who have a hard religious or a hard political ideology. You know, they think they are right, and anybody who disagrees with them is wrong. And because they're right, they're entitled to just push you out of the way. And, you know, the horrible extremism that that uh, can create, when we see in what ISIS is doing in Iraq and Syria right now, the young man that they uh, beheaded just last week is actually from my neighborhood, um, which has a horrible, horrible, uh, tragic uh, sadness uh, here in our my local community. Um, but that that's where that extreme that you know that belief that I am right, how I see the world based upon my belief system is right, it, it will entitle me to kill people uh, who don't share it. And, you know, you see it over and over in history. I mean, you know, of course, the great example we all use is uh, Nazism. You, you take a belief system that makes a certain amount of sense, at least it has an internal logic, you combine it with a charismatic, ruthless leader and really bad things happen. And that's happened over and over. It happens in little ways where, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, a person gets control of a local political machine or a local church and leads that small group down a destructive path. But you see it on the national and international level with, you know, the Hitlers of the world, uh, of history. And, you know, there's something about human beings, unfortunately, that many of us want to be like sheep and, and just follow a shepherd. Um, but unfortunately, there are often as many bad shepherds as there are good ones. There's going to be that idea of some agenda being in the cards with that. <clears throat> yeah, if, you know, a, a really dangerous formula is a ideology combined with a ruthless, charismatic leader, and bad things are going to happen. And But so why do people want to be sheep-like? And, you know, part of it is fear. Uh, it's, it's kind of fearful, uh, thinking about the deep questions of life. Uh, you know, what are my values? What what is the meaning of life? Uh, is, does God exist? You know, all those great deep 
uh, soulful questions. And if somebody gives you an answer, you know, here it is, A, B, C, and D. This, this doctrine, this ideology answers all those questions. Well, that's attractive to a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. But, but wouldn't we be better off to act with the, the existential freedom that each of us have to figure out for ourselves what do we value and how can we live a meaningful life being guided by those values? That we do. So how can people get a copy of this book? It sounds like such a fascinating read. <laughs> well, the title is Godless, Living a Valuable Life Beyond Beliefs. And, and I have to put in a footnote uh, that it, it's not advocating atheism. And the God that it's actually talking about is not God as doctrines that people claim to uh, define, describe, God and all the things that you're then supposed to do because people worship doctrines as opposed to God. But anyway, uh, that's the title and it's available through Amazon. Uh, so wherever you are, however you can connect to Amazon, you can find it under my name, uh, Jeff Raisley, or you can find it through the title and also on my website which is www.jeffrey, uh, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, raisley, R-A-S-L-E-Y, dot com. Uh, information about the BASA Foundation um, and the, uh, the books I've written and trekking in the Himalayas are all on that site. And uh, the latest book, is it hard copy, e-book, both? It's both, yep, yeah. uh, paperback and e-book. Right. So there's no excuse not, not to get your hands on it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Every one of your listeners. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> a little bit of a plug. Why not? A little, little one. <laughs> well, Jeff, it's been absolutely phenomenal chatting to you on this podcast. And I please keep us informed on, on what's happening and how the developments are and what amazing stories unfold. It's been delightful talking with you, Lena. I, I really hope we'll get to do this again. Um, you're, you're a wonderful, sensitive interviewer. Give yourself permission. Permission to be amazing, bold, generous, valued, celebrated, inspired, and transformed. Because when you choose to live from courage and be authentically real, and you choose to make the moment, meet the moment, step up and step in, being the true illuminary that you really are, and honoring the supernova within, that's when you honor the invitation to greatness. For more information, head on over to www.lenaski.com.